head and uh, hopefully that would be some kind of outline for you as uh, I go through this teaching this morning. I want to do something that I hope isn't too pretentious of me. About three years ago I started to translate the New Testament and uh, I'm not too far through. I think uh, I've done about seven uh, of the books of the New Testament. But about 18 months ago I actually translated Paul's letter to the Colossians and uh, The pretentious part is, I I wondered if I could read this, uh, and if you would listen rather than read it with me. What I'm trying to do here is to communicate something of the passion of uh, the Apostle Paul's heart as he writes to the Christians at Colossae. Oh, Colossians you're in danger of losing sight of the fact that God has come near you. In former times, God's people were warned not to try to portray him with icons and images. But this is different. This is not man's insecurity or inventiveness. It's God's initiative to come near and to dwell among us in his Son, Jesus. This Jesus has made the invisible visible, the intangible tangible, and the eternal historical. And he's done that in comprehensive perfection. This has not diminished him, or lowered him, or reduced him, In fact, the reverse is true. He is over the created world and forever before the created world. The created world is the result of his creativity. He made stars before stools, plants before plows, and trees before tables. He is responsible not only for the things that we can see and hear, and smell, and touch, and taste. But he is powerfully in control of those unseen powers that affect our lives here on earth so practically and radically. He's the one who shapes the geography of the nations and controls the history of their people. Absolutely nothing is beyond him, over him, or outside his grasp and authority. However far you can see, however high you can reach, however deep you can fathom, all came into being by him, is held together in him, and was made for him. Never, never place Jesus alongside other spiritual beings. He's in a category of his own, unique, special, and distinctive. So far as creation is concerned, he brings life. And so far as the church is concerned, he becomes Lord. 
For in the timelessness and spacelessness of eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit conferred together to create man to resemble them and so become capable of being God's family. Alas, the family God created decided that they knew better than God why they had been created, and they disregarded his instructions to them. And so, his image in them was distorted, and they forfeited their relationship to him. Human beings have chosen to do things their way ever since that beginning, and have lived their lives adrift from God and alienated to God. Some, however, recognize God's original intention realized that it was beyond human ability to do anything about it, rejoiced that God had a master plan, repented of their stupidity, and received Jesus as Lord as well as Savior. And now on earth, there's a group of people who reflect Christ's supreme lordship, His church. God's master plan is staggering. For he became man without ceasing to be God. He became creature without ceasing to be creator. And having made the universe, he came to live within it. His plan was to redeem what was lost, reconcile what was hostile, and mend what was broken. Hey, and he did all of this through his Son, Jesus. God, who became man, had to die in order to bring all things, not just people, to himself. My mind can't grasp it. My words can't articulate it. My emotions can't express it. That his precious eight pints of blood could bring back a whole universe to himself. But this I know, and to this my whole life is committed, that since Jesus died on Calvary's cross, death is defeated. God's righteousness is satisfied. Man's sin is forgiven. Salvation for ordinary people can be eternally secure. Evil has been conquered. Freedom is now given to man to live a righteous life. Hope is eternal. Heaven is opened. The Spirit is released, wholeness is possible, and community on that basis is formed over which Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, dear Colossians, that's the theology, that's the theory, that's the truth. But you have entered into the reality of this incredible master plan of God's, and you have begun to experience its pulsating power. So the universal has become intrusively personal for you. When I read that, as I was preparing for this morning, towards the end of last week, I, I just sat there stunned. 
And I began to see, because I've pastored three churches, I came to see as I sat there in my office up at the church, that so often we focus on things that are not unimportant, but not the the main issue. And this is what you asked me to speak about today, the main issue, that God became man in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's the irreducible minimum to be a Christian, that Jesus is God become man. That's what we believe passionately from our hearts. And uh, I, I put down on that little sheet of paper, incidentally, see you guys sitting here at the front. Uh, I thought Friday night was wonderful. That was a great night. And uh, I was saying to Andy, I think I might copy that and take it back to my own church and... Uh, I'm not even sure that I would give honor to the creativity of you guys, but it was great. The the quiz itself, the quiz itself, we were going to do our own quiz, but the guy, we we love going to to quizzes, and um, the guy that actually authored that quiz that we presented and and changed slightly because he doesn't do the spot then. He's the manager of the NatWest Bank in, in Langport, and he delivered exactly the same quiz to another charity fundraising quiz on Friday night yeah. over in, in Stoke St. Gregory. But he found out we were doing this, and he said, you might as well use my quiz. Terrific. And uh, he is, he's, he's, he's brilliant, but he, he was. It was a fantastic evening, and God really used Do it again. It. Yeah, you must do that. <coughs> well, that kind of took me off where I was... Uh, Attempting to go, but it doesn't matter, does it? We're we're family here, and uh, that's that's the important thing. I put down that little sheet of paper. You see, in the ancient world, the world where Paul is writing this stuff that I just read to you this morning, in the ancient world, they found it very difficult to believe that Jesus was a man. They couldn't work him out because of his influence and as a man of in his 30s how how could he have such a, an, an intrusive life transforming influence they couldn't work that out so they they decided that actually he wasn't man whereas in the 21st century we have the opposite difficulty we have great difficulty believing that Jesus is God if you talk to people they might have some clue Very few have these days, but they might have some clue about Jesus the man, but the fact he was God. And so we're putting these two things together in the incarnation. That's what the Bible unmistakably does. And so I put at the top of your little sheet of notes, if God became man, then you would expect him. And I I put down eight things there. I don't know if that would be your conclusion But here they are. If God became man, you would expect him to have an unusual entrance into this life on earth, wouldn't you? I mean, you wouldn't expect him to be born in the same way that you were born or I was born. So his entrance into life, and we we call it the virgin birth. And uh, 
the details. It's, there isn't time this morning to explore that. But every manuscript of, uh, of the Scriptures lay emphasis on the fact that Jesus had an extraordinary entrance into this life. We find it very, at least I, maybe you don't, but I find it very difficult to get my head around that. How did that happen? Secondly, you would ex- if God became man, you would expect him to be without sin, wouldn't you? If God is God, there would be purity and righteousness that uh, would be unsoiled in any way whatsoever. Thirdly, that if God became man, you would expect him to manifest the supernatural in the form of miracles. Uh, biblical knowledge is at a low ebb these days within our culture, but if uh, there are those who know something about Jesus, they would say something. He, did, did he not sort of feed 5,000? Uh, did he not turn water into wine? You see, people remember the fact about Jesus that actually he, uh, he lived in such a way that you couldn't explain what he did in human terms by human reason. So you would expect God, if he became a man, to manifest the supernatural in the form of miracles. Fourthly, you would expect that he would have an acute sense of difference. You're probably aware of Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says to the disciples, who who do people say that I am? And uh, the disciples say, well, they really can't work you out. Some are saying that you're John the Baptist, or that you're Elijah, or that you're Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They they feel that you had a a previous existence on earth, and it's, it's an evidence of reincarnation. That's how they're explaining it, that you are a reincarnation. You had a previous existence on earth. And of course, Jesus then says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And... Uh, it's, peace. it's always Peter, isn't it, who says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the one we've been waiting for for uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So you didn't have a previous existence on earth, but you did have a previous existence in eternity. But the, the, you're so different. But you would expect that if God became a man. And then number five, if God became a man, you would expect him to speak the greatest words that were ever spoken. And that's true. The words of Jesus are still referred to uh, within our society. People aren't aware of the source of these words, but we're we're still using some of Jesus' teaching. Then number six, if God became a man, you would expect him to have a lasting and a universal influence. You certainly wouldn't think so in our country, in the United Kingdom where the church is rapidly declining. But that's not true across the world. In Asia, South America, in Africa, the church is exploding. I mean, you would know that. In fact, the church is growing faster today than at any other time in its history. But you would expect that if God became a man and the center of the church and the heart of the church about Jesus. Then number seven, If God became a man, you would expect him to satisfy the spiritual hunger in human beings. We are in a phase in our church these days where 
pretty well every Sunday we see people becoming Christians. It's an amazing thing that's happening. And there are, there are brothers and sisters, there are hungry people out there. The problem is they don't know how to satisfy their hunger. And we don't always demonstrate or show them or tell them about that. But if God became a man, you would expect him to satisfy, that man to satisfy the spiritual hunger in human beings. See, basically people are not all that interested in the church, but they are interested in Jesus. And then number eight, if God became a man, you would expect him to exercise power over death. And that's precisely what Jesus said. If you want a, a reference, it's John chapter 11, which you would know very well how Jesus went to a man called, or to a grave where a man called Lazarus had been laid. And he brought him out of the tomb. You know the story. And Jesus, in that context, says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And when we stand at an open grave and we lower a precious loved one who knows Jesus into that hole in the ground, we know that that final and comprehensive, though it may seem, that is not the end. Because if God became a man, you would expect that he actually exercised power over death. Now, I don't know what you make of these eight things, but I'd like you to think about them. Because my turn is that we would be utterly, fundamentally, intrusively aware that Jesus is God become man. And for the next few minutes, uh, I, I wanted to look at the final part, the second half of this little sheet of paper. Why did God become man in Jesus? And I put down three answers to that very simple question. First of all, God became man in Jesus so that he could redeem men and women when Jesus was defining his ministry. This is what he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's why I think Rob, where is he, chose the servant king. From heaven he came, helpless babe, entered our world, his glory veiled, not to be served, but to serve and give his life that we might live. See, Jesus defines or answers the question, why, why did God become man? Why did Jesus come? He came to redeem men and women. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life that we might live. And uh, I'm sure you're very well aware of the fact that the symbol of the Christian faith it's not a fish, and it's not a dove. Symbol of the Christian faith is a cross. And the reason for that is because 
The cross is central to the life of Jesus. Jesus knew that he was born to die. His death has a, a disproportionate amount of space in the four Gospels. There, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are really quite short, small biographies of Jesus. And yet, there's a, a disproportionate amount in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. About a third of these three Gospels is handed over to his death. In, in the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, half of that Gospel is handed over to the circumstances surrounding the death of Jesus. I don't come from a, a credo background. I think I'm the poorer for that, but that's another story. But the earliest Christian creed, the Apostles' Creed, very interesting, it only mentions two people. One has to do with Jesus' birth, born of the Virgin Mary. The other has to do with Jesus' death, crucified under Pontius Pilate. And I find it fascinating that the Apostles' Creed moves from his birth to his death and says nothing about his ministry. Why? Because the death of Christ defines the purpose for which Jesus came. He came to die. And that's why I noticed on your notices, I think it's the 13th of April, you're having communion on that Sunday evening. See, Jesus said... When you remember me, remember me my death. My wife died 17 months ago. Uh, we as a family don't remember her in her death. We remember her in her life. In fact, my family said to me, Dad, put up photographs of Mum all around the house as you remember her. That's what I've done. But they're photographs of 30, 40 years ago. See, when we think of and remember people, we remember them in their life. But Jesus said, when you think of me and remember me, remember me in my death, because that's crucial to who I really am. And the New Testament is very, very, very interesting in in the Gospels, there's a great deal about Jesus' life. But in the letters of the New Testament, actually there's very little, hardly anything at all about Jesus' life, but there are over 300 references to his death. So why did Jesus come? He came to redeem men and women. I, I found this, and uh, you've probably heard it before, but you're going to hear it again. This morning, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been entertainment, God would have had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. And so God sent us a Savior. That's what the incarnation is about. That Jesus 
came to redeem men and women. Many years ago, I came across a story that's always fascinated me. In the days when the Salvation Army was born, the Salvation Army wasn't very well thought of. And General Booth, William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, wasn't regarded very highly. In fact, when they said general, they put it in inverted commas. It was, uh, it was a title that they despised, and they were held up to public ridicule and contempt. Uh, one day in Manchester, a sal- young Salvation Army girl was uh, holding an open-air meeting on a very wide street where, in fact, she wasn't causing any difficulty, but she was arrested for causing obstruction to uh, the traffic. And uh, so she was brought to court. I love this story. And she stood in the dock, and the the magistrate uh, in that uh, police court in Manchester was a man called Frank Crossley. And so he's sitting on the bench, and he hears the charge being read out. And so he exercises the law, and he convicts her, and he charges her with a fine, quite substantial fine. So he's on the bench over here, and she's out there on the dock. And having declared the punishment. He then gets up from the bench and he he walks across the well of the court to the dock and he stands with this Salvation Army girl having passed sentence on her and he pays her fine. And that's precisely what God does in Jesus. Because the Bible teaches us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So Jesus came as God made flesh to deal with the problem of our sinful lives. That's why... I wrote in my translation that because of Jesus' death, death is defeated, righteousness is satisfied, sin is forgiven, salvation for ordinary people is secured, God is revealed, evil is defeated, freedom is given me to live a righteous life, community is formed, selfishness is challenged, prayer is effective, hope is eternal, heaven is open, servanthood is triumphant, the Spirit is released, Wholeness is possible and peace becomes a reality because Jesus died. And that's why the central act of Christian worship is communion. There are two other things that I wanted that we would notice because Jesus, God became man in Jesus, not simply to redeem men and women, although that was his primary function, But he came also to reveal God to men and women. In uh, that passage, John 14 and verse 9, Jesus says, Anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. See, one of the disciples is saying to him, Actually, we we don't know what God is like. And Jesus Jesus said, "I, I, I don't understand. 
I've been with you for three years and you still don't know why I'm here. He has seen me, has seen. Father, you see, we have a problem with God because God has no body. He's invisible. That's tough on us. Because educationally, we've been brought up to think that you test reality by your five senses. If I can hear it, see it, smell it, taste it, or touch it, it's real. That's how we judge reality. It's called the scientific method or the empirically verifiable method. I just mentioned that so you know I know about these things. That's, that's the way we work out reality. But you can't do that with God. Because God has no body. He's invisible. God has no birthdays. Isn't that tough? He's eternal. So he doesn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an ending. That's outside our scope, isn't it? It's outside my scope. Maybe down in five head here, you've sussed it. But I, I can't do that. So God is not only invisible, God is eternal. That is beyond me. But not only does he have no body and he's no birthdays, but he's no boundaries. There are no boundaries to his knowledge. You can never fool God. We think we can, but we can. There are no boundaries to God's knowledge. There are no boundaries to God's presence. Right at this moment. He's, he's with the part of God's family that I belong to up there in Buckinghamshire. But he's with us here. There are no boundaries to God's presence. And there are no boundaries to God's power. There's nothing too hard for God. See, we're totally... Maybe I ought to make it personal. I'm totally out of my depth here. Nobody invisible, no birthdays, eternal, no boundaries to his knowledge, to his presence, or to his power. And so Jesus came so that we would understand what God is really like. Way back in 1937, up in London, there was an Ideal Homes exhibition in Olympia, and somebody had the bright idea, I've no idea why, why would people want to do this, but somebody climbed up Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square, right in the heart of London, and they took a plaster cast of his head and shoulders, and they brought that down the column, and they placed it at eye level in the Ideal Homes exhibition of 1937, so that Instead of standing in the middle of Trafalgar, very dangerous thing, standing in the middle of Trafalgar Square looking up, a lot of pigeons there. But you can't see the features of Admiral Lord Nelson. But somebody had the bright idea they would bring Nelson down to eye level. And that's what Jesus did for God. You want to know what God is like? Look at me. That's what Jesus said. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Why do you ask the question? What is the Father like? So Jesus came to mend what's broken, to heal what's sick, to rescue what's lost, 
to release what's imprisoned, to care for what is forsaken, to cleanse what is soiled, to restore what is damaged, to comfort what is grieving, and to strengthen what is weak. And brothers and sisters, I've got goosebumps now. That is what God is like. As we look at Jesus, we see what God is really like. There are all kinds of distorted views of God. And then the third thing, but my time's gone. Jesus came to redeem men and women, to reveal God to men and women, and then thirdly, to resource the church of men and women, you and me. He came to resource us. And in John chapter 1, that great first chapter of the fourth gospel, this is what Jesus' cousin John says, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, when Jesus was baptized by his cousin John, he's standing praying, and heaven opens. I don't really know what that means. I think it means that eternity and history are in contact. Heaven opens. And Jesus sees a vision, and he hears a voice. The vision is he sees the Spirit of God descend on him like a dove in bodily form. I don't understand that. I believe it, but I don't understand it. And the voice says, Son, I want you to know that I'm pleased with you. You are my son. And actually, before that, there is no ministry. Jesus doesn't have a ministry. And there are no miracles. Check it out. There are no miracles. But after that event, when God the Father sends God the Spirit on God the Son, a ministry is initiated. Luke chapter 3, that's what it says. This isn't Pentecostal. This isn't charismatic. This is Bible. This is what the Bible teaches. And so a ministry is initiated and miracles begin to happen. And Jesus came in order that we should know that same anointing. I don't know where you're at this morning with regard to all of this. But to be filled with or anointed with the Spirit means that creative gifts are given. Ability for leadership is given. Godly wisdom is is given. Prophetic utterances are expressed. The revelation of God's purposes are opened up. Exultant praise, Christ-centered worship, authority in speech, boldness in faith. There are powerful signs and wonders. There's winsome grace and God-honoring wholeness. There's effective witness and attractive evangelism. Darkness is conquered and joy is irrepressible because the Spirit has come. For the last, oh, many months, I've been using Celtic prayers for my own private devotional life. And on the very first page, 
of Celtic prayers, there's a prayer that I pray every morning. Most powerful spirit, come down upon me and subdue me. From heaven, where the ordinary is made glorious, and glory seems but ordinary, bathe me with the brilliance of your light, like dew. the resourcing that God wants to give us so that we can live, hey, so that we can live the Jesus life in his power. I'm so grateful, Andy, you asked me to explore the incarnation and come and share that with you this morning. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to redeem men and women to reveal God to men and women and to resource the church of men and women. Can we just take a moment of quietness? I don't know if there's anybody here this morning who as yet has not known a vibrant, significant relationship with God. March the 30th, 2014, could be this morning in this church. You realize why God became man in order to redeem you. Why? Could it be this morning that some of us have had a distorted and almost twisted view of God. Today is the time of revelation. God is it's like Jesus. Jesus came to demonstrate who God is and what God is like. Maybe that there are some with us this morning who are feeling tired. You're a Christian. You're feeling empty, feeling dry. Jesus wants to fill you afresh, anoint you again with his Holy Spirit. There is a Redeemer, Jesus God's own Son, Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son. my Redeemer, name above all names, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, 
for sinners slain. Thank you, oh my Father. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son. 